<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Conspiranormal. Okay, welcome to Conspiranormal, everybody. Welcome back. Second show of the year. Um, you know, this is gonna this is gonna be interesting because I've never actually, I think, gotten a guest that was like this weird like sequence of events that caused me to have one. Uh, Amy Petula is here with us, guys, and we're gonna talk about the Corpsewood murders. But uh, I just want to say, just like how I actually met you. Um, so. I think everybody knows if they've listened to Conspiracy Normal, I've been to Chattanooga for the last few months uh, while COVID has been going on. And um, maybe eventually I'll be back in Nashville. But so I've been doing this like little delivery job on the side. I had to GP, my GPS just like takes me to the back of this building, right? It took me to the back of the building, not the front. I don't know why it just did. And I had to walk. I had to walk around, and I had to wait for these wings to be placed. It took like twenty minutes. So there's these all these people gathered around, and it's like the Chattanooga Ghost Tours. And I was like, "Oh, cool, the Chattanooga Ghost Tours. Well, maybe I'll come and check this out." And uh, Amy, you were sitting there, and I started uh, talking to you, and um, we were talking about the Ghost Tour and all that and what you were doing, and. I looked over and you had a little stand with some books in it. And one of them was the book that we're going to talk about tonight, which is your book, uh, the Corpsewood Banner murders in North Georgia. And I said, Oh, I know that I know that story. And you said, Oh, that's my book. And I was like, really? Cause I, this had been something that, um, I've been wanting to talk about for a long time. I've heard of on some other like true crime podcasts and, Serfiel actually went down to that area back like last year and we'd been talking about it for a while. So it was uh, a little bit of a interesting synchronicity that how, how I met you. So welcome to Conspira Normal. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. I gotta yeah. say, I have never had anyone say I've never had anyone so weird on my show. <laughs> oh no, he just meant the synchronicity and actually meeting you. I, think. <laughs> I, I I can tell you that um, we've that had we've, weirder people. We've definitely had sure. weirder people. Okay, <laughs> you're, you're not a you're not a Martian secret super soldier. So um, 
are, are claimed to be. So therefore that's a, that you're not the weirdest for sure. Uh, so this is an interesting case of the Corpsewood Manor murders, but I kind of want to just kind of get like your background first and kind of like how you became interested, I guess, in what you do now with the Chattanooga ghost tour company that you, that you run and that you own. And then also what particularly about this case, like kind of struck you enough to like kind of write a book about it. Well, you know, I practiced law for 20 years. The ghost tour is my retirement job. It's much more fun. Um, but I first heard about the, the Corpsewood Manor case um, when I was practicing law. From the time that I got up there, I, I started practicing in 86, uh, and the case had happened a few years before that. People were talking about it then. They still talk about it today. Um, so, you know, I became interested in it there. Now, as far as the, the tour, um, the way I got started doing tours is, my kids and I love taking ghost tours other places. We'd always said, how come Chattanooga doesn't have one? Because, you know, it's such a tourist city. So when I decided to retire from practicing law, I decided to do some research and see if there were enough ghost stories in Chattanooga to make it worth people's while to go on a tour. And it turns out there's an abundance. When I started the tour, I started hearing about this story from an entirely different angle. So it was a perfect book for me to write. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of like the Chattanooga ghost stories. So, so this case is, it has that like real kind of uh, sensationalistic thing with it because it's all about um, these guys were considered like Satanists and all this type of thing. And they, yeah, Charles Scudder. And they had gone out into the woods, kind of like away from society. And then these two, uh, and we'll get more to the details here in a bit, but these two like younger guys ended up killing them. And so it kind of had this sensational case. And, but I really want to get kind of like a background on who Charles Scudder was and Joey Odom and why these guys from like Chicago would come down all the way to, to a place like Tryon, Georgia. Okay. Well, you know, I tell folks, this is the most bizarre true crime you'll ever hear because anything weird you can think of, you know, it's in this case. Um, Charles Scudder was a professor of pharmacology at Loyola university in Chicago and also the co-director of the Institute for the study of mind, drugs, and behavior. So, you know, you know what kind of studies they were doing. Um, Joey Odom had been his housekeeper for many years. Um, It's an interesting relationship because they were nowhere close to the same level intellectually. I think Joey only had about a third grade uh, education and he had different focuses, but they got along really well. So they lived together for, you know, more than 20 years. Um, And uh, what happened was, you know, they basically got fed up with a rat race. Um, Charles went up into Loyola on his 50th birthday and resigned. Um, they decided they wanted to live someplace entirely surrounded by national forest. So they looked through several states and they finally found a piece of property in Tryon, Georgia, which is a really tiny town. It's only like 1,700 people. Um, uh, shipped down a house full of Renaissance era furniture, which sat in the middle of the woods, covered by tarps for a year. Um, and loaded up the truck with two huge mastiffs, two human skulls, and 12,000 doses of LSD, and came on down. And it wasn't just, 
of course, you know, with these folks, it wasn't even just your ordinary Jeep. It, it uh, had big and big inverted pentagrams on both sides of it. Now, honestly, I think it's because it was had been a military vehicle before, but I don't think that was why they liked it, you know, because Charles was involved with the Church of Satan. As far as Charles' um, research, there's speculation that he was involved with what we collectively know as MKUltra and the LSD experimentation? Loyola was not involved with MKUltra. But, okay. you know, there were, you know, obviously, I mean, the the LSD vials had government-grade uh, labels on them. So they obviously had been doing some experiments with uh, with that. It just wasn't what's known as MK Ultra. Okay. Yeah. I found a, it, I looked it up. I found a list of the colleges and things that had been involved in that study. And it wasn't on there. I think I read that you said it's difficult to like find uh, published work by him. Is that true? Cause it seems like someone like him would have a, he, he's published a bunch, but okay. you know, mostly they're obscure sort of, um, articles and books and things like that, you know, and it's on all kinds of different subjects, you know, from uh, psychology studies, you know, there's a, a Mother Earth magazine article that he wrote about basically how to, how to, you know, go out and live in the woods yourself. Um, and that one's fairly easy to find. But um, he has a book on chess. I think actually I had that. I think somebody donated that one to me, like his personal book. Um, you know, I can't remember if that was one he wrote or one he had in his library, but he, 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 you know, wrote a lot of different papers, but yeah, because they're not, um, you know, popular, you know, mm -hmm. articles or, yeah. or books or whatever yet, they are hard. Academic stuff, but he, he was very interested in human behavior and it seems like he had a lot of confidence. All the witnesses say he was quite the charmer, and it seems like he had a lot of confidence for being able to control situations and people's behavior. I want to put that out there because you'd wonder, like, why uh, these people from big city Chicago, all these other things, would, like, go and feel comfortable in a place like this. Because he, he did have a lot of confidence, it seems, that he could talk his way out of things or keep some safety. He wanted to be off the grid. Like I said, he wanted to, to live cheap. He was a brilliant man. I would have loved to have known, um, you know, both of them, you know, and he was very well educated on a lot of different subjects. Um, and yes, was supposed to be a, a fascinating conversationalist. Um, but there are people that say, you know, that he uh, he could convince people to do, you know, whatever he, he wanted them to do. You know, there are people that would say that but he was very persuasive. And part of that may have been because he was so interested in human behavior and what makes people tick and what buttons to push to, to get that kind of reaction. Because living in a small, you know, and it is a pretty redneck town, you know, when you're, when, when you have old pentagrams on the side of your truck or whatever, and there's rumors about you, you know, with drugs or, you know, parties or whatever. Um, he had plenty of people that came up there looking for a fight and, yeah you know, manage up until the end to diffuse the situation every time. And for a little while, he used this yeah. one. In the late 70s, I mean, people, you know, society was a lot different. People were way more homophobic. And you got to think, like, it would, it would seem that it'd be kind of dangerous to be, you know, in the middle of this place he wasn't really familiar with. But they did pretty good for for quite a while. 
Yeah, and like you said, he had a you know a lot of confidence and and you know projected that well, and and he got along really well with people. You know, lots of folks were you know were very fascinated with the idea about him, and then when they went up there and met him, um, you know, discovered that they actually liked him. So um, my experience has been with small towns. Small towns will tolerate people they consider weirdos if they're their weirdos. You know, if there's somebody who, who lives someplace else, that's different. But, you know, when you can claim them for your own, you know, it's a little different. And that's the same place that, like, Howard Finster comes from. So there, there are other examples of eccentrics from the same area. Definitely. Definitely, yes. Yeah, that was one of the things that really kind of struck me about um, – his relationship to the people that were in the town. I mean, there were people that you could say that were like, kind of like good old boys of the time that would just go up there and just hang out with them. And I guess that they kind of like adopted them in to like the, to into the town basically. Yeah. Well, you know, lots of people in the town didn't even know they were there, but the people who got to know them, yeah, they, they accepted them. And, and, uh, um, Joey, I think, was shy. I don't think he interacted as much, but um, Charles didn't turn anybody away who came up there. Now, he wouldn't let most people inside the actual manor, the, what people call the castle or the house. Um, they had a separate building that, that he used for visiting with the people that weren't as close. So. And they call that the chicken house? The chicken house, right. Right, which was a, a three-story structure. Uh, the bottom floor had chickens, um, and the uh, middle floor had canned goods. And you know, they say that it had you know some pornographic materials in there. I have yet to find any pictures inside the chicken house. Um, that that's something that I looked a long time for and couldn't find. And then the top floor had what they call the pink room, which was a room covered with pink shag carpet and mattresses that had pink sheets and no real furniture to speak of. And that was sort of the party room. And so these rumors really started getting around the town of these wild parties they were having, because that, that is pretty verified, right? That he, they did have quite the wild parties. Well, you know, in the, I spent a lot of time going through the court file. You know, there, there are some folks that more than any other case that I have ever seen, um, the victims in this case, People are so polarized about them. They want to think they're either angels or they're demons. As far as I'm concerned, they're neither one. They're human, you know. <laughs> so they're, the people who think they're angels, they want to say, oh, no, you know, they didn't have sex with strangers. We're, there are lots of letters in the file of correspondence he had with, you know, some guys in prison for the most part, you know, sometimes some other people. And, and some of them were really sexual in nature. Um, and it was clear what, you know, those were being invited for. Um, some of the people who want to think they're angels want to say, no, they didn't do LSD. And then you say, well, you know, there was three vials found. One was full, one was half full, one was empty, you know, and the total of those, you know, if they were all full, it's 12,000 doses. Oh, well, those were just souvenirs. You know, I, honest to God, I have heard that more than one time from people. You know, I think it's a little prejudiced to be thinking, oh, you know, they must not have done that because that's basically implying they were bad people if they had that. And back in those days, I mean, LSD was viewed differently than too. It was yeah. more acceptable than, than what people think now, you know, among, right. among intellectuals, among certain groups. Mm -hmm. So, and he was definitely an intellectual. 
and he had worked with it in in his academic career. Right, right. So he was familiar with it, you know. I want to talk a little bit about like his like his satanic beliefs and kind of like his involvement with the Church of Satan because this is the big thing that like the case really hinges around. And of course, this happens at the end of 1982. This is kind of like the beginning of kind of like the satanic panic era, you know, so it it, it has that tinge to it. Um but like some of the things that were there on the property that kind of lend that kind of lend to that he was definitely like a Satanist and what he might have actually where he actually stood there, was he like a Levain Satanist? Like what was his kind of status with Satanism? I don't think he would ever um apply a label to himself. He from what I understand, he knew, you know, and conversed with uh Anthony LeBay before. Uh, Anton LaVey. Um, so um, I don't think he was like one of those. There are two different things people mean when they say Satanist. Some of them, they mean devil worshippers, which is not what he was at all. You know, devil worshippers are the ones who, you know, want to do evil, you know, do the devil's work, whatever. Satanists don't believe in the devil. They don't believe in God or the devil. They're atheists. And calling themselves Satanists is really a way for them to, you know, poke fun at, Christians. So, um, and, and that was the, you know, that was what he fell into, not the, you know, not the evil pact or whatever, but yeah, there were, you know, there were things in the, you know, some of the artwork that they had in the uh, home, they had a, a statue of Mephistopheles. Um, they had um, several other pieces of artwork that were bizarre to say the least. Um in the court file, there were checks made to the Church of Satan. You know, I mean, <laughs> that was that was one of the ones things that I brought up before when I was talking to some of those other folks. So. I think for his membership and like something for a subscription to the newsletter or something like that. I think that's exactly what it was for. But I think you know Charles was a really curious person, so I could mm-hmm. totally see him, you know, being curious about this at that time. The the Church of Satan attracted a lot of intellectuals as well. You know, it yeah. started uh, out in the area, um, you know, near the, the colleges or whatnot. So, you know, it attracted that and it attracted a lot of the outcast and the different sort of folks. And, and Charles was definitely the, the artsy type, you know, he was, he was, <laughs> he was not your standard professor. So, yeah. um, you know, uh, I, I can understand why he would, you know, that would be something that he'd be into. There was like a stain, big stained glass Baphomet and all these things, which, you know, me and Adam are pretty familiar with this stuff. So we're pretty desensitized to it. Um, I was pretty influenced by Anton LaVey when I was young. And, um, but you got to think in a small town, uh, you, you can go and, uh, uh, Google, you know, the images of the corpse of manor and just see how, how cool this place was. You know, it's like this castle with these stained glass, uh, Baphomet and Medusa like, uh, figures. And it's, it, it's got to have had an impact on the townsfolk who came across it though. I know at least some of the, the stained glass Charles created himself, but yeah, you know, they had the Baphomet up on the chimneys. There were four chimneys. All of them had you know, inverted pentagrams on them. So yeah, there was definitely some some you know Church of Satan type imagery that was on there, and when you say about the townspeople, most townspeople would never have seen it because 
you know, to get to Corpsewood, you got to go till the road runs out and then you got to go a mile on a dirt road and you have to find the right turn and you have to find the right falls and then you have to hike half a mile through the woods. So a lot of, a lot of townspeople had no clue it was there because it really was, you know, in the middle of the forest so, on a mountain with a dirt road. <laughs> and I guess some of the, um, the local teenagers and stuff would buy wine from them. So that kind of started getting rumors out there. I don't think he sold it. I think he just, okay. you know, if they came over, then, you know, he didn't card people. Yeah. You want to come, you know, drink some wine with us, have some chats with us. Come on, come party. And sometimes the wine would have LSD in it. And sometimes. Well, it that that's never been proved. That was the, the right. excuse of the, you know, the murderer. He, didn't, he, he told his story about nine times. The first eight there was nothing about hallucinations or LSD or anything like that until they found the LSD tubes, you know, or it came out the the, the mm-hmm. defense attorneys found out about the, the LSD and then suddenly the story changed. He even admitted, Oh yeah, I was reading up on LSD in jail. Well, yeah. You know, so yeah. Kind of hard to, to believe that story. But it was kind of a popular place for the teenagers to go because they liked the guys and he treated them like, yeah. you know, people, you know, not like kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And so this is kind of how Avery Brock comes into the story. Yeah. Avery had been hunting on their property before Avery was 17, I think. And, uh, Charles met him while he was out there hunting and, and, uh, Avery had gone over and visited with them a few times and drank some wine and, and had had, you know, a sexual relate, a consensual sexual relationship uh, with Charles. You know, not not like a dating relationship. They just had sex. You know, a couple of times. Um, Tony West had gone with uh, Avery over there once or twice uh, before. You know, before the murders, and he went and drank wine. He didn't. Uh, uh, he didn't have sex. He, you know, and he. I think part of the reason the murders occurred was when he found out about Avery doing that, he made fun of them, which Avery then got furious. And then of course, not wanting to say, well, it was me, you know, that I, I wanted to try it and see or whatever. Then right. you know, he turns it around in his mind and puts all the blame on Charles. Kind of had an identity conflict and, and uh, blame Charles's hypnotic powers or whatever. Right. Right. Exactly. Now, Avery's never said anything about LSD. That was totally Tony that, that said that, by the way. So, And, and to point out, too, that um, uh, Charles Scudder had a sexual relationship with Avery Brooke. Um, and he was 17 at the time. So, I mean, that's a little dubious. He was 17, but, but he, he had been out on his own for a long time. He was definitely an emancipated 17. He had had a pretty bad home life. You know, he had mm-hmm. a pretty abusive uh, stepfather. Um, and, uh, so he had, you know, he'd been living with Tony in this broken down old trailer for, you know, for a while. Um, and I think for that, he'd been just kind of, you know, couch surfing or whatever he could do because his dad had kicked him out. And you said the age of consent, I believe was 14 at the time in Georgia. Yeah. Yeah. When I started, when I started practicing law in Georgia, 14 was the age of consent. They've since raised, they raised it to 16 and I think they may have raised it again since then. But, uh. But yeah, at that time, you know, that was wasn't statutory rape if you were at least, you know, fourteen. So. Yeah, that was that was a different time for sure. It was. It was. <laughs> so these murders um, t- 
take us through like what the motive for the murders were and like how like the basically the course of the murder how 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 they happened all right well the uh um the reason for the murders like i said you know nobody knows that for sure but you know, I think I think Tony just wanted. I think his reasons were just mercenary. He just wanted to rob him. But Avery, like I said, Tony's been making fun of him, so he got madder and madder. And so he's the one who actually came up with the idea. The 17-year-old who'd never been in trouble before in his life, you know, came up with the idea that he wanted to torture him. He wanted to rape him with the soldering iron. There's a little problem with that. In the first place, they thought they were going to find a soldering iron there. They didn't have one, obviously, because they had no electricity. Um, but, I mean, that's a pretty violent, you know, fantasy to, to, to come up with. Um, so I, I think the two of them had different motives. Um, but what had happened is, you know, they went over there uh, on the, the pre you know, with the, the, the plan to rob them and, whether or not murder was part of the plan is, you know, a different thing. Um, one of them had a, a cousin, Tony had a cousin, uh, Joey Wells, um, who was, you know, young adult. He had a date with a girl named Teresa Hudgens. It's first date, you know, um, and I have no idea why Tony West says, Hey, why don't you guys come go with us up to, you know, the, the place up on the mountain. Um, I don't know if he, you know, thought it would make them more likely to let him into the house or why, you know, I still have never heard anyone come up with a, a reasonable explanation for that. Yeah. I want to point out that this, these guys are not like they, they're not criminal masterminds. No, <laughs> no, they're not, especially not Tony. Tony had been in plenty of trouble before, you know, and, and had not learned his lesson from it. Yeah, what was the story about him? Not to diverge too much, but like when he was when he was a teenager, he shot like his three year old shot and killed his. I think it was a two year old nephew. He was basically uh, saying, "Oh yeah, guns don't hurt you," and playing sort of. Well, I don't know if it was he was trying to play Russian roulette, but he pointed the gun right in Kit's face, pulled the trigger, you know, blew his face off. Good. Um, yeah, I mean it's a horrible. I mean, you know, what kind of teenager even? thinks of something like that. There's so much weird stuff in this case, you know, so much just bizarre. Um, but uh, he did that. And then um, later he'd been in jail. He, he escaped. It was just a misdemeanor, I think, because he escaped before he was convicted instead of after. Um, but, you know, he was over with his uncle, I believe it was playing poker and he got mad about the poker game and shot his uncle. His uncle didn't die, you know, thankfully, but, he was just a bad seed all around, you know, um, the, the two, how, how the two of them wound up living together. I'm not real sure. Cause they were pretty different from each other. Yeah. This was somebody that like should not have even been in society. Out on the streets. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. He should have, he should have just stayed locked up. And after all this, he did, but it's just a shame what happened to, you know, to a couple of good guys because he was out. Um, so anyway, um, they, uh, the four of them go riding around and they're huffing, basically huffing glue. It's called toodaloo. It's a mixture of glue and a couple of other things that aren't really very good for your brain. Um, and, uh, uh, so they were like, you know, Hey, let's go up there. We can, uh, get some, get some free wine. So they, you know, decide that's a good idea. Pull up there, you know, and 
um, Charles comes out, says, sure, come on up. So they're, they're up in the pink room um, drinking. And from what I understand, the wine that he made was pretty potent. It wasn't always tasty because he would make wine from, he experimented with it. He would make it from vegetables, you know, mm. the people I've heard said some, some of the fruit wine was real tasty. Some of the other stuff was just nasty, but it, anyway, it was potent. So they're up there drinking. And uh, uh, then uh, Avery makes an excuse to, to go out and he comes back uh, with a rifle and Charles did manage to originally defuse the situation. You know, he made a joke out of it. He was like, bang, bang, you know, I'll play your game. And uh, Avery laughed and he put gun down for about 20 minutes. Um, but then later on, you know, he picks it back up. He uh, ties, uh, ties Charles up. He, he'd gone into the um, kitchen where Joey was cleaning up the dishes from, you know, from supper and, uh, kill both Joey and the dogs, uh, the, the two Mastiffs that were there. The Mastiffs were just sleeping. They weren't doing anything to them, you know, but, uh, and, and Joey wasn't doing anything to them either. Um, it was, they just didn't want to have anybody else around they had to deal with. They had been asking before trying to get an invitation to get inside the house. And Charles was very insistent. No, you know, we're going up to the, to the pink room. Um, so, you know, after that, they carry Charles down. They force him to, to look at what, um, you know, where Joey was laying there dying. And I think that just kind of Charles lost all will to live at that point um, and uh, blamed himself you know, for what had happened to, uh, to Joey. Um, and they wound up uh, shooting him as well. They wound up shooting him uh, five times. Um uh, I don't. I don't know if you. Well, do you want me to talk about the painting? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Let's. Yeah. Let's definitely bring that up here because this. I mean, this is the perfect place. Um, that's. Th- th- this is one of the weird aspects of this. Uh, this. This case. Right. There's a lot of weird aspects, but um, a couple of years before this, um, Joey had had nightmare and told Charles about it. Charles got up and painted it. And the painting shows Charles um, gagged with five bullet holes in his head. Um, And that's exactly how his body wound up being found. He was gagged with five bullet holes in his head. The murderers didn't see the painting. They didn't know anything about the painting. It's just one of the really, really bizarre coincidences in this case. Yeah, it's, it's weird. You can image search that too. And then what did, uh, what did Charles say when he first saw Joey laying there? Like, didn't he say, I, I asked for this or something like yes, that? Yes. That's exactly what he said. I asked for this. You know, he was blaming himself, you know, because he uh-huh. had, he had, you know, let him in. I'm sure that, that people had brought up to him before, Hey, you know, do you really think it's safe to be as trusting as you are, you know, and to let just anybody in and, and, you know, he realized too late the dangers of that. If they would have seen the interior of the actual manor, they would have realized probably that they weren't as rich as they thought they were. I don't think so. I think they were crazy. What they really thought was that they had money hidden someplace. So even, right. you know, and, and and they had lots of stuff. You know, this was a really, really tiny place. I think 
it was like what around 1500 square feet on both levels so you know around 750 800 square feet per level um that's really tiny and but they have a lot of, of stuff in there and a lot of artwork so you know these weren't super educated people like you said they're not brightest you know and they may have seen it and thought they're they're rich i mean i know what they thought they thought here's these two guys living in the middle of the forest you know with, without jobs they must have a lot of money well as it turns right. out they kept all of their money in the bank. They would literally, if they went to the store to buy an Eskimo pie, you know, an ice cream bar, they would write a check for it. So, you know, what these guys wound up getting away with is very little. They got a bag of nickels and dimes. Um, they got a sword with a jewel and crusted handle. They stole the the Jeep, you know, real smart idea, a Jeep with huge pentagrams on both sides of it. Um, and uh, Doesn't stand out at all, does it? Yeah, not at all. And a leather jacket. You know, so they they got, you know, practically nothing for for the lives of these two men. And, and they and they and they missed the LSD too, which they probably could have at least sold that. Maybe I, there, there's some. I've heard some people say it was really degraded. I don't know if that's the case. I've also heard rumors yeah. that it wound up getting sold. It wound up finding its way out of the evidence room and getting sold later. I'm not going to say, you know, what I believe about that either way, but, but um, uh, definitely people say that there's folks that made you know, some money on it later on, but yeah, they didn't find it. It was in a desk drawer um, and they didn't take the artwork and the artwork. Some of it was really valuable. Um, I think the, uh, the Mephistopheles statue, I think was like $10,000. I think it was pure bronze. And then it had gotten like kind of a black patina on it from age. So it didn't, Maybe it didn't look all that impressive to them or whatever. It was definitely worth some, you know, a, yeah. a good chunk. But they probably wouldn't have known how to get it off anyway. No, no. They wouldn't have known where to sell it. They wouldn't have known that it was valuable. You know, they, they would have just been creeped out by it. So. Right. Yeah, they were looking for cash. Cash and for. jewels if they yeah. could find it, you know. Yeah. Uh, anything small and easily portable. So then they go on the run. Mm-hmm. They did. Um, they, they went together on the run. First, first they, um, you know, here they had these two teenagers. Well, Joey Wells wasn't going to be a problem because, you know, he's relative and he's not, he's kind of sketchy guy already to start with. Um, Joey Wells has been the subject of a lot of speculation over the years. He has never, I think, spoken about you know, what, what had happened other than, you know, in the, in the trial or whatever. Um, and he has, uh, he's been in trouble since, you know, he's been in legal trouble. When I went looking for him, he was in jail up in Cleveland. So I never did get to, to talk to him. And I don't think he would have talked to me, you know, if he would. But Teresa Hudgens, I mean, she's like this, you know, sweet 17-year-old girl who had no idea what was happening. You know, whether Joey Wells knew what was going to happen, of course, he denied that he did. But uh, Wes said that he was in on the on the planning of the whole thing, but Teresa had no idea about what was going on. So they had to do something about her to keep her silent so they could get away. So they basically kind of had their relatives hold her for a a week before finally releasing her to, to give them a chance to get away. And then she went to her family and and they said, you better go tell the police or they're going to arrest you too. So, you know, so that's what she did. And that's when they, you know, found out, um, what had happened they'd already i think found the the bodies by that point because one of the one of their friends had come by and and uh uh 
you know, he saw the the broken glass, and I think he had uh, called the police or whatever. But uh, they didn't; they had no idea who did it until Teresa came forward. What was that uh, initial law enforcement reaction to the crime scene like? Well, you know, probably some of these guys had heard about the place but never been in it. So, you know, I'm sure some of it was just kind of gawking at some of the, you know, the things that were around, you know, because it was definitely beyond the can of what you usually see in small town Georgia. You know, the Church of Satan stuff, you know, books about sex, books about, you know, a lot of intellectual stuff, too. But, you know, definitely some some pornography in there as well. And, um you know, a lot of uh, some of the, the furniture that was supposed to have carvings of, you know, sexual things on it or whatever. So, um, you know, I'm sure that they were a little overwhelmed, you know, with all of that to start with. Was there ever any re- repercussions for that family because they had kept her silent like that? That almost seems like criminal conspiracy all of, all of its own. You would think, but um, I found that part really strange in the book. Chattooga County, you know, Chattooga County in the first place is small town. Everybody knows everybody. The sheriff knew absolutely everybody. And, you know, Sheriff McConnell, you know, I'd always heard that part of the reason that he got to be as powerful as he did was because he knew how to, you know, how to let the little fish go to catch the big fish. And that's what he was doing here. You know, he got the family to, to testify and they didn't wind up charging them. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I think that happens in small towns, maybe more, more often than, well, I don't know. It probably happens in big cities too, just because they don't have as much time and, you know, to, to concentrate on the small fish. So, yeah, maybe um, people and I think, right? I think Teresa maybe didn't her, her family, weren't insisting on prosecuting them you know what everybody wanted was to have the killers caught right right well how does she eventually um she eventually gets away and she's able to how does that happen i think you wrote that she she used an excuse of seeing some other friends or something and then was able to get home and right was, i think yeah. that's what it was yeah. and i think probably by that time if she managed to get away really relatively easily i think they were probably kind of ready to have her go too yeah. So, um, yeah. So she managed to basically slip away from them and, and you know make her way home. So, um, but in the meantime, um, Tony West and, and Avery Brock or Kenneth Brock um, were on the run and they were getting on each other's nerves. You know, they had they had uh, decided they finally figured it out it was a stupid idea to be in that vehicle. So they, uh, for some reason, decided that they wanted to get I think a Toyota Corolla. Um, pulled in at a rest stop and there was a, an officer or um, a naval officer, I believe who was in there just sleeping in his car. Um, and they uh, rousted him out. And um, of course they claim, Oh, we wouldn't have killed him except for, you know, he swung a fist at us. So I had to shoot him, you know, um, but they wound up killing him still in his car. So they'd be a little bit less conspicuous. Um and, you know, their, their plans for where they were going to go kind of meandered around. I know they said one thing in front of Teresa and Joey that was supposed to be to kind of throw them off the track. And then they were like, should we go to Mexico, let's go out west or whatever. But, um, you know, Kenneth kind of, Avery, wanted to uh, head home. He was getting kind of lonesome. And 
Tony was basically saying, well, go on and do, you know, do your own thing. I don't care what you do. You know, get out of here. Get on my nerves anyway. They, they were in a strip joint when the, their final falling out finally happened. And uh, so Kenneth took off and managed to make his way back to uh, Marietta, Georgia, where he called his family. It's not in any of the files. And I've never heard this officially said, but I've heard unofficially that, you know, there were wiretaps on the family's phone and that's how the police found out about it. And, you know, went down and took him into custody down there um, with uh, you know, no trouble or anything like that. Um, you want me to go ahead and talk about Tony's because Tony's getting caught. So a little funnier. Story. Yeah, that I really do want you to talk about that because that is that is really really interesting. <laughs> well, you know, and, and we'll talk in, in a little bit about one of the rumors that's come up since all this has happened is that uh, you know there's a curse. You take a brick from from corpse wood. You know, bad things happen to you. And one of the things that people say most commonly is that you know you have car problems well these guys had had their their car died that night that's why they took you know the the jeep but um so tony tony gets lonesome himself decides he's going to go home he's coming home on christmas eve pouring down right now i mean just sprinkling or whatever it was like sheets torrents coming down and his car runs out of gas uh right um across the the line between georgia and tennessee um and there's a bar over there, what was it, the Palomino Club? Yeah, Palomino Club, yeah. Palomino Club, kind of a seating joint. Um, and well, he decides... If you know if, if if you know Rossville Boulevard, it's all seedy, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's true. So he decides he's going to go get a drink. Well, he, he comes to the bar, and outside, you know, there's this uh, uh, policeman. And Tony, who, like I said, not the brightest fellow, pretty self-centered, Besides, well, if there's a policeman outside the bar, he must be looking for him. So he comes <laughs> up to the guy outside the bar with his arms outstretched in front of him, like ready for the cuffs. And the guy's like, what are you doing? <laughs> he's like, well, aren't you going to arrest me? He's like, well, what for? You know, and he says, um, well, for murder. <laughs> murder. What are you talking about? And he says, I killed those two guys in Chattanooga County. Now, this is a, a Chattanooga cop. He hadn't heard anything about murders over in, you know, in, in Tryon, Georgia. Um, so he runs the NCIC report twice. Doesn't come up on there, you know, either time. So uh, he was like going to let him go. And Tony's fairly insistent about it. You know, and he gets them to call over to, to Somerville and they say, yeah, we've been looking for those guys. Yeah. So, um, so the guy, you know, takes him to his fine. Yeah. I mean, it's Christmas Eve. I'm sure he wanted to get home to his family. Yeah. But, <laughs> Here he's stuck with this guy who's insistent that he's a murderer. So, uh, you know, he puts him in his car, takes him down to Rossville, Georgia, where Tony sits in the lobby of the jail, not in the cell or anything, smoking cigarettes while they're waiting for the Somerville folks to come because it's about an hour away. And, uh, um, you know, they finally show up. When they get there, they decide, well, maybe there's a problem with uh, extradition or something since we brought, since he came across the state line. So they drive him back up to Tennessee, right across the line, and make him voluntarily walk back across the line into Georgia to surrender himself to the, the police officers in Georgia. I have never, ever heard of a murderer who went to so much trouble to get themselves arrested. So um, It's like a scene out of a Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> right? Right. So, uh, so that, you know, that's, that's how you wound up getting arrested. So. Yeah. I love, I love that story. 
for sure. That's one of my favorite parts. So now there's three murders on their hands. Right, right. You know, the Charles and Joey and then uh, Lieutenant Kirby, um, which was in, I believe, Mississippi. So, you know, there was, you know, that case hanging over him as well. Um, And uh, the judge... Um, Judge Loggins was very insistent on getting this case tried because it was a huge sensational case. I mean, it was, this thing got national coverage, not, no, this thing got international coverage. European tabloids were having helicopters fly overhead over the castle because, you know, they had the the roads and all roped off um, so that they could take pictures up there. Um, You know, and, and they wanted the, you know, the publicity from it. So he insisted on getting this to trial quickly. Um, so the, you know, the prosecution had to rush and get everything together. Um, Avery wound up pleading uh, to life, but um, the, uh, the prosecutor, Ralph Van Pelt, he's a, a judge now. I love Ralph to death, but you know, he wanted to seek the death penalty and judge Loggins, you know, was basically like, you know, you're never going to get the death penalty for those queers because that's just how Judge Lagos was. I'm not saying that's appropriate language. I'm just saying that's how it was, which yeah. made Ralph more determined than ever that he was going to seek the death penalty. Um, and uh, and he, he got it, you know, when they when they went to trial. So um, uh, after that, though, because it had gotten rushed so much, they had a bad pool that they picked the jurors from. It didn't have enough women in it because at the time Georgia or that part of Georgia anyway, was using what they call blue ribbon juries. Basically they had jury commissioners that went out and handpicked from their buddies, the people who were going to go in the jury pool. And, you know, believe it or not, it didn't accurately reflect how many, <laughs> you know, men or women or, you know, black or white or, or, you know, wealthy people or not, you know, were in there. It was not, a jury of their peers for sure. So it wound up getting overturned. Um, they finally got the case transferred away from Judge Loggins. You know, it had a special judge uh, that would accept the plea because he he tried to plead guilty to life uh, in front of Judge Loggins, who had initially made him think he was going to take it. And you know, in the middle of the plea, he's like, "No, I'm not going to take this." So, um, but that's how the case finally got wrapped up. And, and so Tony, after being tried one time, you know, did eventually plead to, to life. And yeah, it was still a, in there last time. They're both still in, in, in jail and still alive. Last time I checked, Tony, I, I believe I'd heard that. Well, yeah, I know that I, I'd heard that Tony had AIDS. So, um, but I guess he's getting medical care in jail. So, mm. yeah, it's it seems like such a weird technicality to kind of go back and retry the case. You know, that was that was definitely something that his lawyer just, I guess, found or something like that. Well, I. It, no, it was something that the DA had warned the judge that he was worried before they ever tried the case to start uh, with that that was going to be a problem. But the judge was insistent he was going to hear this case. You know, mm-hmm. they were going to. You said you know, this judge was this judge was not concerned with getting appeals or things being overturned later. He always just kind of wanted to have his judgment. Oh, I've heard Judge Loggins say before, well, the appeals courts may overturn them, turn me. They've done that plenty of times before, but I'm going to go ahead and do what I think is right. You know, so. He kind of seems like the caricature of an old Southern judge a little bit, you know? A little bit, yeah. And one of the prosecuting attorneys, you says, is uh, was 
the partial inspiration for Matlock? Uh, no, not a prosecuting attorney. Um, Bobby Lee Cook. Defense. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Bobby Lee Cook represented the one of the families of the victims uh, in the property case, the the civil case that, that came out of it. Okay, that's right. Um, because there was a big fight. You know, it was a big issue about who died first because um, Charles had a will and Joey didn't. Uh, and Charles's will left everything to Joey. So if Charles died first, then he had disinherited his kids, you know, then, then Joey's family would get everything. If uh, Joey died first, then Charles's family would get everything. So, um, so yeah, they had the, uh, the issue about that. And, and, Charles's family wound up getting most of it. I think they finally eventually reached the settlement. Joey's family got a little bit of stuff, but but not much. So. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. And you, you mentioned earlier how some of the, the stories got changed during the trial when the when the LSD was discovered. The LSD was probably discovered during the search, but right. the prosecution didn't tell the, the defense uh, side about it until a couple of weeks before trial. They said, oh, we didn't think that was relevant. <laughs> Uh, you know, it kind of is, but um, you know whether it had anything to do with this or not. It's one of those things where you, you got to let them know. And so, yeah, at that point, then you know, I mean, Tony had confessed several times before, probably even got lawyers. Um, but his his story changed substantially to, oh yeah, I was hallucinating and I saw myself rise out of my body, and the I thought the dogs were little lions, and that's why I, you know, although he wasn't the one who shot him, but that's. Well, supposedly, um, uh, you know, and the trees were glowing, this, all this stuff that was basically based on, you know, when he heard about the LSD, he started looking it up, you know, in uh, the whatever he could get his hands on or talking to people in prison about it or whatever. And like I said, he did wind up admitting that in the, during the trial that he'd done some research about it while he'd been there in jail. Um, yeah. And so the story became completely different then. Mm-hmm. So how did the judgments eventually fall on, on both of them? Like I said, Kenneth um, or Avery pled guilty to um, a life sentence. Because you know, like I said, he was, 17, he was young. He hadn't been in trouble before. Tony had Tony was like 40 or something. You know, he was a good bit older, had had lots of criminal background. So, uh, yeah, so like I said, they insisted on, on asking for the death penalty. He got the death penalty. But after the uh, appeal, after it was overturned, um, then they wound up uh, getting away from Judge Liggins, and then he got to plead to uh, to life instead. Because of the jury issue. Because of the jury issue. Okay. Right. Right. Let's move to some of these um, weird, almost like supernatural kind of aspects of the case. Um, one of the things that that struck me was when they discovered the bodies and I guess it had been a couple of days, but you know, there was kind of like, and of course 
decay would have set in, but there was kind of like this lingering smell around that area. Um, I know that the there's a documentary that was made by these religious right nuts that um, that you know put all kinds of you know stuff like like that in there about oh there's all this demonic stuff around. I, I don't mm-hmm. I don't I don't know that I really remember because it's been a while since I've read the whole thing what it, what it was that you were talking about about the smell. I tried to watch some of that documentary, by the way. It was it was pretty painful to watch. But, you know, the coolest thing about that documentary, when I first, very first thing, when I started writing this book, I wanted to open it with a quote from the, the poem Tiger, Tiger, you know, mm-hmm. Tiger, Tiger, burning bright in the force of the night. Um, so, and, you know, so I had gone ahead and put that in there. Well, then later on, a friend of mine said, you know what you, what you ought to put in there at the beginning is a, the quote from uh, Hosier's Take Me to Church. And I was like, oh, it'd be great. And I'll just, so I moved it to the middle of the book. Hosier, of course, never gave me permission to use that one, but it stayed in the middle of the book. Well, after I you know, had started writing or whatever, um, had gotten most of it written, then, you know, what, I uh, finished this. I know I sent it to my publisher in December. So early November, I finally got to see, right before I was, you know, all wrapped up with it, um, got to see the documentary and it had, it had audio that had been made of Charles on the last day of his life, the day of the murder, playing his harp and reciting that poem. So yeah. that was one of the really, I, that just blew me away. My jaw dropped. I couldn't believe, and I, I actually didn't believe that that was actually the day of his murder. I thought there's no way that, that that's just too much of a coincidence. But then I, I hunted down the info and sure enough, it was. Have you heard that Adam? The, the what? The recording? No. No. The recording. She's talking about. Yeah. No, I think I have it. You, you want, want me to see? Yeah, I I heard it on the uh, it's on the the Church of Satan has a a tribute page to Charles and uh, they've got the recording on there too. Yeah. Oh, do they really? Uh, well, here, okay. let me. You want me to play it? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears. Did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger burning bright in the forests of the night. What immortal hand or eye dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Yes, that's haunting got the harp going and um yeah that's and when it that's was one made, of those you know yeah that day there's a lot of weird stuff and then that's the synchronicity itself and that uh you were already going to include some of that yeah i mean it was the first thing i wrote the first thing you know and, and then to have that come up but there was a lot of weird stuff when i was writing this book you know i i would uh um when i went to the the library i had to take because my publisher needed really, really high res photos. So I had to take like my printer scanner with me so that I could copy it really high res. And when I was at the DA's office and taking ones of like the Judith Neely case or whatever of the pictures worked fine. 
went to the Chattooga County Library to make uh, copies of the, the pages of that booklet that the newspaper had released back then. Wouldn't work, you know. Went to the clerk's office to make copies of some things, that, you know, in the court file. Wouldn't work. You know, I eventually, I eventually did get those things, but I mean, my, the thing wouldn't turn on. I was in the, the uh, other side of the clerk's office looking at the property case and suddenly like three pieces of equipment start, you know, malfunctioning and making noise. You know, the, the clerk there, um, the criminal clerk told me, you know, she had the file behind her desk and she said, you come back here and get it because she would not touch it because she said weird stuff happened to her, you know, whenever, um, uh, whenever she, she touched the, the file. So that's what I did. Every time I go over, I just go, you know, get it myself. So she wouldn't have to. Um, but then the weirdest thing was after I turned the, you know, turned the manuscript in, you want me to talk about that? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, this was, I love this story. Um, I had, you know, I've been working at a computer for months and, you know, my muscles were all knotted up. So I went to go get a massage. I already sent the manuscript in. And uh, so I'm talking to the masseuse, you know, he's this young guy, you know, and I said, oh, yeah, I just finished a book. And he said, oh, what's it about? You know, it's like, oh, it's about these two gay guys, you know, in, in trying that got murdered. He's like, was, was that a long time ago? And I said, yeah, it was back in you know, 1982. And he said, well, I went out there before, you know, when I was in, when I was a teenager, when I was in school, he said, me and my buddies went out on a dare, which that happens a lot. A lot of teenagers, I think still even to this day, go out there on a dare. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, now, like I said, to, to get to this place, you know, I told you how complicated it was and the, the little parking area, you know, I don't think it would even hold two cars. Um, and then you have to hike half a mile through the woods. Well, they, they said they got there. There's no other car there. But they hiked down through the woods to the ruins of the, the uh, manor, which had been burnt not long after all this happened. Um, and uh, uh, here's these two, they said, kind of ragged-looking guys sitting in lawn chairs in the middle of the ruins, like around where the dining room would have been. And they chatted with them a little bit. They told them, oh, yeah, we come out here on the same day every year. And uh, it, this was just, uh, and he said that then they, uh, he and his buddies went, you know, and they were exploring in the woods. Some they came back, the guys were gone. He said that the, the guys had been really kind of disturbed about the noise running up and down the road. Now you'll remember, I said, you know, Charles and Joey came out there because they wanted some peace and quiet and away from the rat race. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, when they came back, they were gone. They didn't know where they went. You know, there was no car that, that apparently brought them there and it was quite a ways to, you know, to get there. So they had no idea where they came from. Anyway, this was all just sounding too familiar to me. So I said, was, was this in the winter time? And he said, well, I don't know. It might've been, it was cold out. And uh, I said, well, what'd they look like? And he said, well, one of the guys was uh, bigger and, uh, and then one of the guys was smaller. And I said, was the smaller guy blonde and the bigger guy had dark hair? And he said, yeah. And I had a picture in, in my car that at the time I thought it was Charles and Joey. Turns out it was Charles and some other guy. But uh, I thought it was, you know, the two of them at the time. So I brought it in. And um, the, the guy's jaw just drops. He says, I don't know who that, you know, the dark haired guy is. But this, uh, the, the little guy, blonde guy, that's the guy we saw in the woods. He's even dressed kind of like what he was dressed then. 
And what makes me really believe that one, you know, a lot of people tell ghost stories, but this guy didn't think he was telling a ghost story. He thought he's just telling me about these weird guys that he met out in the middle of the woods, you know. So after he said that, I told him, you know, these are the guys who were murdered there. And his his jaw just dropped in. So it was, um, that was one of the most bizarre things that probably happened while I was, you know, researching the book. Well, since you said it was the winter time, I mean, does you, I mean, do you kind of speculate that that could have been? Yeah, I thought it might have been the anniversary of their death. That's why. Yeah. I asked that, you know? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of what I thought. This is definitely um, the type of stuff we like to talk about. Um, is there any other strange experiences around this? You almost had an occult detective uh, chapter doing all this. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I. Uh, uh, there have been rumors ever since then, like I said, of curses and ghosts and giant strange creatures. You know, the um, the curse, you know, they claim is that if you take anything from corpse wood, you're going to have bad luck. And what a lot of people like to take is a brick. And there's a whole big old pile of bricks that people have brought back because they took it and had bad luck and, you know, took it back. You know, some of the people I know dug up some of the bushes and I don't, you know, those people I think just... I know I heard at least one of them say that they burned it or something. Um, the uh, uh, one of the police officers who was there the night that they found the bodies um, was bound and determined that he was not going to be there after dark. Well, of course, he went up getting stuck there after dark because, you know, when you got a murder investigation, you do whatever it takes. Um, and uh, on his way out of there, uh, according to him, the, I forget it was the transmission or the carburetor fell out of his car. I didn't even know that was possible. You know, <laughs> um, there's, uh, uh, one of the guys that I talked to who was, you know, they were like neighbors and were, you know, friends, whatever his, his dad knew him. He was a kid at the time that he said that Charles had during his lifetime had been trying to talk the guy into, um, selling him his car and the guy was like no I, you know I'm going to sell my car and Charles says you, you're going to want to sell me your car you know before long and uh, later that day according to the son you know I wasn't there so I can't vouch for it but all four tires fell off the car you know um, right, just lots of weird stuff I took out my uh, uh, obelisk out there uh, and uh, got a lot of words like you know about scared you know terrified run dogs you know a lot of things that could have been associated with that Mm. um i don't think it's i think for a while you know there a lot of people said there were a lot of bad things that happened for a while i haven't heard of anything bad things happening since howard finster died you know and that's why my book originally kind of did a uh, contrast between Paradise Gardens, you know, and Corpsewood Manor. Um, you know, there are some people, you know, Mark Fultz, um, who's a friend of mine, you know, and he's a psychic and paranormal investigator that was around here before. You know, he swears that he knew some of the the actual devil worshippers, not Church of Satan, but some of the devil worshippers that, that had befriended, you know, Charles before and he says that, you know, Charles had invoked a demon. I don't, I don't know about that. You know, I've heard people contest that or whatever. But sometimes people do things in jest or for fun that, you know, wind up having some bad consequences. Um, 
but uh, like I said, since you know Howard, Howard was uh, he was doing God's work in his painting. You know, I don't know how much you or your listeners or whatever know about Howard Fenster. He is a nationally known folk artist. His work's been displayed at, at the Smithsonian. He lived in Tryon, you know, this town of seventeen hundred people, too. Um, and he, every one of his thousands of, of pieces of art that he created has a number on it because he said he was trying to get the last piece put on. He was trying to get get done, and apparently he, you know, right before he died, he, he must have thought he got the last piece put on, is, is my understanding. But, you know, he didn't start painting until he was 60. He had been a bicycle repairman and a street preacher. When I first heard about Howard Fenster, you know, it was when I was in the courthouse and they, they'd be saying that crazy Howard Fister out there, you know, pre- there you go, out there preaching on the, the courthouse steps again. Somebody go do something about that. Um, and so then when I heard he was famous folk artist, I was thinking that that can't be the same person. But it was, you know, he said God told him to start painting sacred art. Uh, and he says, oh, I can't paint. And God says, how do you know? So uh, his first piece of sacred art, he took out a dollar bill and painted a a picture of George Washington on the side of a old Rustin tin um, metal structure that they have out there. And and his sacred art includes pictures of, you know, Elvis and Coke bottles and and, like I said, George Washington, as well as angels and things like that. Um, But uh, yeah, that's, that's my, that was the theory I was, I was, trying to talk about in the book, but my, my publisher didn't let me get into all that about uh-huh. you know, that. That's when the bad stuff stopped happening was, you know, around when Charles died, uh, around when uh, Howard died, which also was right around the time they discovered the, all the bodies uh, that police had been out to tri-state crematory multiple times before and claimed they never saw any bodies or skulls or bones or anything like that. And then, you know, Howard dies and like immediately they find 300 bodies out there, you know, so um, it's just a lot of weird. Well, and I'd encourage anyone to go uh, check out uh, Howard Finster's uh, Paradise Garden. It's a really magical place. I really had a good time. And Yeah, and if you're not familiar with um, Howard Finster, he's he was – he did a couple during the eighties. He did a couple of her, a uh, couple of albums for album covers for a bands, uh, talking heads, little creatures. And he also did REM's reckoning. So if you guys are familiar with that or just look it up, that was, that was Howard Finster that did that. And, uh, paradise gardens is an interesting place. I haven't been in several, several years, but it's pretty fascinating. It's very cool. It's, you know, if you like folk art, you know, that's a, that's a place you gotta visit. And he's kind of a he's similar to a lot of like uh, UFO contactees too. It's under you know he says he saw angels, but a lot of those types of things are you know we explore similarities in accounts of angelic beings and UFO accounts also things like fairies and even uh, other creatures and things like that. Well, yeah, I mean a lot of his pictures have the classical angels, but if I recall, some of his pictures definitely look a little bit like UFOs too. So, you know, he has a, yeah, he's got a few flying saucers in some of the, some of the paintings too I've seen. And, you know, the other thing that, that I found really fascinating about him is he's got that, uh, uh, what is it? World's folk art church or whatever that, that he built out there. It was like a a one story building 
and he expanded on it. He had no zero construction experience or plans. He says, God told him how to build it. It's like a 16 sided structure. I mean, that is a really complicated building for anybody, especially somebody who doesn't have anything other than what God's telling them about how to build it. Well, Charles Scudder, I mean, they didn't have any construction experience either. And they built coursewood. No, but they read a book and Charles, Charles was more educated than, than Howard was, you know, and might be able to figure it out a little bit better. You know, Howard was not, you know, he was not a real educated guy, but he did some amazing work. When Howard had his, his vision about, you know, God telling him to paint sacred art, what, what he was doing, he was repairing a bicycle and he got a little smudge of, uh, uh, white paint on his finger and that's what worked into you know whatever and that's what started talking to him was that little smudge of paint on his finger you know that was god talking to him so <laughs> interesting the lord works in mysterious ways well, yes he does <laughs> well, something i wanted to ask i mean you said that there were that uh, around corpsewood around tryon there were uh mysterious creatures seen do you know anything else about that yeah yeah, I mean, there there are some people that, you know, have said, you know, they've seen, you know, large, you know, things. And, and I mean, some of them obviously were drunk. Some of them, you know, have said, oh, yeah, they saw Bigfoot chained up in the basement of, of uh, Corpsewood. And there's been this persistent rumor about the drug lab in the basement of Corpsewood. Corpsewood had no basement. You know, there's um, there was a staircase and there's a big concrete base for it you know to that held it up between the first floor and the second floor well all these conspiracy nuts i'll think uh that's where you know the police tried to hide it and they poured concrete down the you know the stairs that went down to the basement there was never any basement there but you know one guy swears that he sees that but there was one guy um that had been like a pretty federal level you know, police officer or something like that, not the drinker type, not the hallucination type who had told me that he saw something out there. Now him, I didn't have any way to explain that one away. There was a sign that said, beware of the thing on the property, right? Right. right. Kind of familiar. That was kind of, I think, a joke, like an Adam's family, you know, reference. Um, right. Some people think that that was a reference to the dogs. Now the dogs were huge. You know, people had said that at least one of the dogs standing on four legs that its head would, you know, would be up at your window level. You know, that's, that's pretty dead. That's like horse size. Um, But, uh, and apparently they were really well trained to like not let people out of their car unless Charles was there. You know, they didn't attack or anything like that. You know, they probably would have if he told them to, but uh, they also, they did their job. They were guard dogs, you know, um, as well as pets. Um, and so some people have said that it referred to that, but um, I, I think it was a like a little piece of fun about the Adams family. So yeah, bull mastiffs were pretty. They're pretty intimidating. Well, what uh, what I was gonna say about all that is like you know some of the things that we've talked about on this show. Uh, we've talked about like some of these these areas that just have like a lot of weirdness surrounding them. And it almost seems like this area is like that because you've got Charles Scudder, jo- Joey Odom, just kind of, you know, being attracted to this land, 
they come and they and they build the house on it. You've got Howard Finster, uh, the Roy the Roy Marsh, the, the Tri-State Crematorium stuff, the the weird murders that have happened there. We haven't even touched on the 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 dismemberment in the gas station. Uh, and just all these kind of weird stuff and these strange creatures that have been sighted and all this, like, like, is it, I wonder if it's possible that, that, that area is just kind of this weird nexus of this stuff. Well, that's, you know, you, we were talking about that a little before you started recording and, and this is a town, like I said, it was about 1700 people for it to have as many bizarre murders, serial killers, as it does, I mean, the odds have got to be astronomical. You know, Judith Neely, who was the youngest woman ever sentenced to, to death in the United States, you know, one of those murders, you know, occurred there. And it wasn't your average normal, you know, shoot somebody and kill them. You know, she had this little 13-year-old girl that she injected with Drano, and then she shot her and then pushed her off a cliff. You know, I mean, it was it was a horrible, horrible thing. And Judith had been an honor student. She had never been in any trouble before that. You know, and then, you know, to start your life with crime like that, you know. And then, like I said, with a trouble. Before, and then here he's one to, you know, rape him with a soldering iron. And then the the case that you're talking about, um, the, oh, what's the guy's name? Anyway, yeah, I can... I'll remember his name in a minute, but I can tell you about the, the case. You know, this guy's like um, Howard Bissell. Um, he's this 400-pound guy from Ohio, and he has this little 97-pound girlfriend. And Howard had been a script, uh, or Hayward, Hayward had been a schizophrenic, but he'd never been violent. He'd never been in any trouble before, you know. Um, they decided they were going on vacation to Florida. Well, the voices in his head started giving him directions, and they wound up in Tryon, Georgia, where he, this man who'd never been in trouble before, proceeds to uh, first they go they go in the the uh, convenience store. There's videotape of them going in the convenience store, no problem, whatever. They're parked in this gravel lot right next to the convenience store. So as soon as they go out, he goes out there. He cuts off one of her arms, one of her legs. Um, cuts her heart out, and um, then later on, uh, after, he goes on a killing spree in, in Alabama immediately after that, you know, and it's this huge, awful ice snowstorm. When they finally catch him, and they're they're talking to him, you know, one of the cops is saying, hey, I think he's, he's, I think he's got a finger in his pocket. Turns out that's not what, and, and the police officer's like, oh, we'll just leave it there for right now. I mean, my God, they're sitting there interviewing him and they're saying, oh yeah, let him keep that finger in his pocket. And so during the interview, he pulls the thing out and starts chewing on it. It is not a finger, it is her esophagus, you know? So, I mean, just bizarre, bizarre. And then, you know, like we said, tri-state crematory, bizarre. Just yeah. lots of bizarre stuff that seems to be around a nexus in that, or did at least for a while seem to be in a nexus around that tiny town. It's kind of stopped. I think that Corpse was a real peaceful place right now. Um, but up till Howard's death, yeah, there's a lot of weirdness. And I was telling you before we started recording that I, I went to that gas station and unbeknownst to me that had uh, taken, taken place there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Make sure to put a photo of it in there so you can track it down <laughs> if you're doing your own little investigation. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's interesting that it stops with Howard Fence when Howard Fencer dies. Well, I think, I think that, he like, was, you know, he was sacrificing. He was giving God his life and, and doing yeah. God's work. And like he's, I mean, he's the one who said, "I want, I need to get the last piece put on before I die." And, and from what I understand, he he believed that he had shortly before his death. And so I think that that, you know, I think it was a a sacrifice thing, and, and the bad stuff stopped happening. That that brings a whole new dimension to Finster. Yeah, it sounds like he was he was maybe like transmuting the negative uh, aspects and energy maybe into something positive, and then you get to end to all the negative stuff. Right. right. Hmm. Something. I mean, I I can't sit here and say it's true, but it, it just seems the whole the whole area, all the stuff that happened around there is so weird that that just made sense to me. That's why you find a timeline in the back of my book. Um, like the, like I said, my publisher made me take out a lot of that stuff. But if you if you look at the timeline, you can kind of get the idea of what I was talking about. Yeah, there's um, some friends of ours that do a podcast called Penny Royal, and they talk about um, their hometown of Somerset, Kentucky, and it's kind of similar. There's a lot of weird murders. There's just weird stuff that happens there. And so as I'm reading this book, I'm just like, wow, this sounds a lot like um, what goes on there. And Adams, uh, Tennessee, is very much, I think, is kind of similar with the Bell Witch stuff. Um, There's similar mythology because with the Bell Witch case, I mean, people say if they take something from the cave, they'll have bad luck. People say if they take something from Corpsewood, they'll have bad luck. So I find that interesting, too. Just the similarities there. Yeah, I've been a, I've been up to that cave before. Um, don't ever go if it's been raining a lot. You're basically through <laughs> a creek. <laughs> <laughs> so real quick, I got the timeline here, and you've got uh, 76. Howard Finster has a vision to create sacred art. Uh, 76 through 77, Joey Odom and Charles Scudder move to Tryon. Uh, 82, the Marsh family moves to the Tryon State Crematory Grounds. Uh, also, 82, Scudder claims to create a demon. 82, Finster buys World's Folk Art Church and converts it to look like a giant wedding cake. Uh, 82, Judith Neely and Alvin Neely go to, on their murder spree. Uh, December 82, Scudder and Odom are murdered. December 82, Scudder's and possibly Odom's bodies are delivered to Tri-State Crematory. 96, Bryant Marsh takes over operations at Tri-State and begins abandoning bodies on the grounds. January 2000, Hayward Bizzle murders and dismembers Patricia Booher. Uh, October 2001, after a civilian complaint of bodies there, officers find nothing at Tri-State Crematory. And October 2001, Finster dies. February 2002, more than 300 bodies are found at Tri-State. So that's kind of, you tie in all these events of that area. And it, it is quite the, quite the story. Yep, it, it's definitely different. Very fascinating. As we're kind of closing up here, you also are the uh, head of the Chattanooga Ghost Tours, as we mentioned before. And I'm just curious, uh, what's what's an interesting Chattanooga Ghost story? Um, let me try to think of one that, that's not uh, on the tour and maybe is not one of the the more common ones that people know. Um, the Duck Pond Cemetery in, in Chattanooga. Do uh, you talk about the Brainerd? Are you talking about Brainerd? Red Bank. Red, Red Bank. Bank. Okay, okay. Which a lot of people call it the Duck Pond Cemetery or Memorial. Um, 
cemetery, something like that. I think it's its actual name. Um, yeah. There's a couple of different things that they say are there. You know, they say <clears throat> near one of the uh, um, graves that there's like a, a shadow, you know, figure that, that hangs out, which typically is, you guys have probably talked before about some of the different kinds of hauntings. It's not, it's one of those. that's not really a ghost. It's like a recorded memory, something that happens over and over again. And it's yeah, like a residual, right. Yeah. Residual. That doesn't seem to have any consciousness of what's going on around it. Uh, although I have heard people say that they've seen it. They've tried to catch up with them. And it's kind of run away with them in the backwater of the cemetery. But then there's also um, a story uh that uh, a security guard who'd been there for 20 years, you know, got run out and came back only in the morning to get his stuff and leave and never come back when uh, some strange creature was up in the tree near the guard shack, menacing him and then chased him all through the cemetery. So a couple of, couple of interesting stories of that one. Interesting. Interesting. Um, on our, on our, our uh, tour, the underground Chattanooga site has always proved really active still. Um, the, there, we didn't know for the first three years that we were doing the tour, first four years we were doing the tours, that it had been a undertakers back in the old days when they still called them undertakers. So that made it make a lot more sense about why it's so actively haunted. We've had a lot of things happen there. Okay. And where can people uh, sign up for the tour if they want to come to Chattanooga? Yeah, ChattanoogaGhostTours.com. Right now, we're only running uh, one tour and one hunt. It's our best tour, which we've won a lot of national awards with. It's a murder and mayhem tour. Um, and it has like a lot less walking and more ghosts than our original tour did. Um, and then the UTC Cemetery Ghost Hunt, which is our best hunt, uh, that's more like the investigations you see on TV with all the equipment we have you know, things from K2 meters to ovelus and, and uh, periscopes and lots of things that even, you know, a lot of the ghost investigator people don't get to normally play with um, or use. Um, you know, we do those on the weekends, um, Friday set and Saturdays for the hunt. The tour we do every night except for in the wintertime. And right now we're just doing it Friday, Saturdays and Sundays, although if people you know, want to go some other time. If they have at least four people, they can call us and we'll, we'll hook them up if we can. Um, and they can, like I said, they can do all that at ChattanoogaGhostTours.com. Cool. Less walking, more ghosts sounds great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Do you guys use that for advertising? <laughs> well, you know, when, when we started that, when a lot of, we had a lot of people that were calling, well, I want your original tour. I want your original tour because we go on awards with that, too. I was like, no, no, really. You want the Murder and Mayhem tour. Let's walk in more ghosts. You know, so. <laughs> Murder and Mayhem. Sounds great. <laughs> and where can people find the book? Um, any place that books are sold from, you know, we sell it in our, we sell autograph copies in our shop and, and on the website. Um, or, you know, whether you go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart.com, you know, brick and mortar stores here in Chattanooga, um, sometimes the Ace Hardware, you know, <laughs> any, any place they sell um, books, you can find the book. It, it's been mentioned on a, a couple of pretty well-known national podcasts. I actually had a, a studio contact me about possibly optioning the rights for a feature film, so there may be something bigger coming, but it still seems to be. Uh, oh, you can also find it on like, iTunes and Google Play. I would really like to see a film made of this. Um, yeah. 
I, I, I think the Cohen I think the Cohen brothers need to direct. I think that that's or David Lynch, I think was what you yeah, said. Yeah, David too, Lynch. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they need to have a more accurate story, you know. I, I I need to see that. You know who I think you know who I think that that uh, Charles Scudder who actually resembles Charles Scudder is the uh the guy who played the dad on Twilight, I forget what that actor's name is, but I think he actually looks a lot like him. I think, you know, if you're going just on looks, I think he would be a good one to play. Okay, I think I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. the blonde-headed, you know, whatever. <laughs> oh, okay, was he the, like, the vampire? Was he a yeah, vampire? He was, he was okay, I, I know who you're talking about. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was the dad. Everybody yeah. loved him, so. Yeah, Okay. All right, cool. Excellent. Well, thank you guys so much for having me on. Yeah, yeah. One more thing. I do have oh. another book, too. Haunted Chattanooga talks about ghosts all over the city. Okay, okay. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you for, for doing this. Um, just hold for just for just a little bit. Uh, we're just going to close this section out, and guys, we'll be back to close the show. Welcome back, guys, to the show. Uh, we'll do a brief outro here, as we always want to do. That was a very good, very good interview with uh, Amy Petula about the Corpsewood Murder Manners. Really impressed by that. And we kind of dug into the case and uh, some interesting things about that area that um, I never thought of and the connections to Howard Finster and all that uh there's some interesting <laughs> she brought up some interesting stuff that it could have could have happened yeah and even though um charles scudder was you know some kind of a levian satanist um you know there's definitely a lot of supernatural happenings around the murders it sounds like and that stuff is really wild including she had quite quite a few synchronicities uh during her research and writing of the book which is probably my most uh favorite part of the whole interview yeah 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 that was that was very very interesting with the uh, william blake poem uh that he was reciting and i think we're gonna we're gonna you're gonna insert that in that audio so um, interesting to me was that he claimed that, did he claim that he summoned a demon? So even though that he was Levian Satanist, which is mostly, um, well, really is an, as an atheistic philosophy, as I understand it, was he, could he have been dabbling in some other things? I mean, I don't think it's necessarily always mutually exclusive um there's plenty of people from that scene who believe in magic and believe in supernatural things but uh it just wasn't uh, articulated as some kind of you know dogma by anton levey but sure. a lot of people have really been trying to uh, rehabilitate him levey in a magical light saying that even though on the surface he says he was an atheist etc um things are a lot more magical and esoteric than than they seem mm -hmm. uh so who knows i mean where would carl abrahamson fit in on that do you think yeah i think he'd probably say that there was real 
real magic that was at least bordering on the supernatural. Um, but, but yeah, so who, who knows? There definitely sounds like there's some happenings and at least, um, he was very persuasive and, um, good with, uh, manipulating human behavior. Dr. Scudder, um, it's just, it's kind of sad. I think some of this might've come from, like I've expressed to you, um, an over, overconfidence in the ability to control people and, you know, this wasn't even because they were weird for the town or anything like that. It just boils down to greed, pretty much, and some, you know, hard-up dumbasses uh, just uh, robbing them, you know? Right, right. It's kind of an opposite in the whole, like, narrative of the Satanic Panic, right? Because, you know, it's usually yeah. the Satanists that are the ones doing the killing or the sacrificing or whatever stuff that they say happened but before our modern era where everyone can just look up you know what happened i mean think about how the urban legends must have been in the area right i'm sure like for oh it's still it's still pretty huge there uh i worked with um with a girl just recently when i was up in nashville still that she was from that area and she talked and i asked about the corpus wood and she was like oh yeah you don't go up there that's where the satanists were and all this so it's very, it's still very much like a part of the urban legend in that area. Right. People yeah. are really legend, legend tripping there. Probably a lot right. of teenagers, metalheads. Right, right. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite the story. Um, you know, I don't even always feel comfortable in small towns. I just, I just don't see how you would want to be, want to be out there with, uh, you know, those kinds of beliefs and lifestyles. It's just, they definitely have yeah. some. Yeah, and it's interesting to me just how uh, Charles like seemed a very gregarious person, but yet he wanted to get away. And once he got away from society, you know, he just welcomed people in. He still wanted to be social. He still wanted to be gregarious with people. And apparently there were other things going on. But, like, I, I don't know. You know, it's interesting. It, it's interesting to me. And, and, and also... The whole theory about the land being there's something going on there in that area. Was he p- perhaps maybe even just like subconsciously attracted to that area? You know, like what was going what what was going on there? Um, did did he dabble in something? Did he unleash something? I mean, you never know. Uh, the whole thing about the smell. Apparently there was a smell that lingered in the area for days and days and the police were like, you know, it wasn't it wasn't really the smell of decay, that something that they would have been used to in their job. But right. like they they talked about it for years afterwards. And apparently flies gathered in the area too. And I remember also the um I think the sheriffs at the autopsy all shared with each other that they felt you know some kind of extreme sense of being watched and some kind of presence when they were around the bodies yeah. too yeah so that was pretty weird yeah so was finster maybe even subconsciously responding to that or you know? cl- cleansing you know like yeah. alchemically transmuting then all the negative vibes of the area you know that's a yeah, something by cool building paradise gardens was he 
was that what he was doing yeah interesting I think there might be more to Scudder too. Um, I know she says that Loyola wasn't involved in MK Ultra, but um, you know, being involved in LSD experiments back then, you know, he might have been privy to some stuff too. Like who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, without getting too conspiratorial, I'm sure people have already gone there with that, and um, you know, put him in league with like people like uh, Aquino. And uh, other <laughs> other types who dealt with uh, mind control and were involved with the Church of Satan. Well, I mean, you're already you're already in the Church of Satan, so you're already messing around with weird shit anyway. So, I mean, it is kind of is what it is. I don't really you know, <laughs> it, interesting little crossovers there. Um, okay, well, I mean, I think that's it. Unless there's anything else you want to add. We're about no, to record that's just, our. That's just that's just great. We hope to keep in touch with uh, Amy Petula, and um, yep. I guess she's got the whole ghost tour down there too. You should you should probably yeah, check out does. one of those ghost tours. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. Uh, so we're about to record our Patreon episode, but uh, we'll be back soon next week with uh, Timothy Renner and Joshua Cutchin talking about the second part of where the footprints in. But for before we go, we do want to tell remind you about Patreon, and I guess um, Sir Fiel, you can let everybody know what they get if they join up. Well, you can go to Patreon.com. We have instituted our new uh, tiered system, where at the five dollar level, you start getting access to these weekly episodes uh, that we are making sure to put out every week. Uh, you also become a member of a secret society called the International Order of Conspiranormalists and will receive your large button to display your membership. Um, at the $10 level, you become a member of the Mystic Crew. And in the Mystic Crew, you have access to these episodes. You get another button, so you get a total of two buttons, and you get access to our monthly hangouts, uh, one of which we are going to be having really soon. We'll let everybody know. Um, And at our $20 level, the Ancient Circle of Strange Realities, you become an adept in that. You receive your button and an exclusive Patreon-only t-shirt with the alien head with the fez on it that's not available on our Public site. And you get access to last year's and the year before's Strange Realities conferences that you can watch on stream as well as uh, future discounts and a VIP experience at the Strange Realities conference in 2021. Yes, and uh, to add to that, the um, Strange Realities level, the $20, I am actually giving out for a limited time until I run out of them uh, the uh, Strange Realities 2019 t-shirts, so you will be receiving those as well. And also Strange Realities 2020, uh, those presentations I will be putting up soon on, start to put those up soon on uh, the Patreon feed too. So that'd be for the $20, for the $20 people. So this is all going to be a lot of fun and I hope to see you guys on Patreon, interact with us and um, welcome to all the new people and the people who have upped their pledge pledges thank you very much yes and um yeah we hope to join everyone else on there 
Remember, you can still join for a dollar if you want to, and you've got access to everything from the end of 2016 to the end of 2020, but you will not have access to anything that's new. For that, you got to become a $5 member. So uh, I think that's it. We're going to close it out. Remember, iTunes, haven't seen any iTunes reviews. Give us a five-star glowing review. Tell us how much you just love Conspiranormal. And also, YouTube subscriptions would be nice. Haven't gotten any of those in a while at Conspiranormal Podcasts. So I think that's it. If you're a Patreon, come join us at the end of this week. We're going to have a Patreon episode, and we'll be back on Conspiranormal. your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center thanks to carvana it doesn't get any better than this your favorite seat's the best spot in the house make it even better by entering your license plate or vin and getting a real offer in minutes there really is no place like home and speaking of home carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer visit carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.